Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Once again, let me say happy Sabbath to you. Thank you for leading us in worship. We continue into Scripture in our series entitled Voice. Today, Warrior. Warrior. If you don't mind, turn to 1 John chapter 4. You were already there at the very beginning of the service. We talked a little bit about 1 John chapter 3, but this is 1 John chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen. Either is fine. In the 16th verse, we read this. God is love. Amen? And amen. That's enough for the day. God is love. That's everything we need, and it's what we need as God draws us further into Scripture. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. So, in this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like Him. And verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. All right, warrior. Maybe you haven't referred to yourself that way recently. God is. God does. He's calling you. He's calling me right beside you to a warrior life in this community, back home wherever that is. So let's pray and ask God to guide us. Lord, would you bless us? May we hear your voice, know it is you, and follow. As we wrestle with the words of Scripture, as we consider some amazing stories, Lord, speak to our hearts. Call us deeper with you. Maybe even call us to be warriors for you. In Jesus we ask this. Amen. Well, I, uh, I'm going to move this so I don't trip. There's a, there's a decent likelihood of something like that happening, so we'll avoid that. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I have a voice that if I were to hear it, even though it's been years since I have, Immediately, oh my, it would just ring in my ears and into my heart. As a little, little boy, whenever my grandparents would return from having been overseas as missionaries, they would often come to our house for about a month at a time. It wouldn't be every year, but when they would, they would come for a decent stay. My grandmother and grandfather, Ferguson, or as we would have called them, Grammy and Grampy. And Grampy, Grampy was a big man. He was 6'4". He was a strapping man, an athletic man, huge hands, and a soft voice. One of those people that I still think of, if, oh, if I could just listen to him talk. Because he didn't talk often, but when he did, it was worth listening to, and very often, even just in normal conversation, his voice would lower to a raspy whisper. So you can imagine 
good storyteller that he was, on those evenings he would be home at our house and my brother and myself who stayed in the same bedroom all of our lives until we went away to college and this, in this occasion my little sister would have huddled into one of the beds and just gotten there with us because it's story time before bedtime and Grampy is here. Grammy would tell great stories too. I just have this vivid memory though of Grampy sitting on the end of our bed saying, well, what's, what story would you like to hear? Oh, tell us, tell us a story about the little puppy. Little pup, tell us a story about the puppy. And then it's probably with smiles all over our faces because we knew every step of this, every word of this, every sound he was going to make, he would begin telling us about how as a young, a young man, there one night as the snow fell and the wind, you'd make all the right noises. And the wind blew. And your grampy was getting ready for bed. And I heard a sound. <laughs> oh, you can imagine. We were smiling, and we knew everything that was going to happen, but we would begin to sit up and listen Tell us what it was. And your grampy got up because he could just hear this little sound. <laughs> Putting on some boots and out into the, whoosh, the wind. And he would go on to tell us about trudging through the snow, listening for the little whining of a little puppy he would find astray scoop it into his arms and take it inside. And we all just felt a little warmer under the covers. Ah, oh, nothing like a good bedtime story. From a voice that matters to you. I don't know for sure. I have a, an idea that he must have been a master storyteller. We know he was a gifted poet, a musician. He could use his voice. So this King David that we're studying, I've got to think he was a great storyteller. Can you imagine there, huddled at the end of young boy Solomon's bed? Dad, tell another story. Well, which one do you want to hear? Tell me the one, tell me the one about, <laughs> it's like every night for about a week. Tell me the one about the snow and the footprints. Oh, good one. So one day, the snow had been falling. And there were large footprints. Or maybe it would be another story. Tell me the one. Tell me one about the field. You know, the lentil field. Tell me about that one. Well, okay. Oh, this one day, we were at war. And in fact, the Philistines had amassed a large troop. And in this moment, as we came to this field, all of our troops began to run in fear. And then, as only a good storyteller can, 
King David would circle figuratively in our mind's eye around to stand in the front of the Philistines' lines and watch and look across as they march toward the Israelites fleeing across this field. And there, out in the middle, you see something. What is happening? There's a single man who slows down as his countrymen flee. And he backs up. And he turns around. And he draws his sword in the middle of the field. I can tell you, this chapter we're about to jump into is filled with bedtime story material that might just keep you up at night. Find your way there, 2 Samuel chapter 23, all oh, this is some of the good stuff. You came on the right day. We're diving in at about the 8th verse. There, these are the names of David's mighty warriors. Now you know as David fled King Saul, up to about 600 soldiers accompanied him, hiding in caves, doing all sorts of things. But then there would be the elite soldiers, and then there were the elite of the elite And even after he became king, these mighty warriors, these 30 warriors, though if you read about it from one time to the next, different individuals end up in the 30 so that there are more than actually 30, depending on when you're counting. But there we are in that eighth verse. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. i got to admit to you, I don't know anybody named Josheb, nor do I know anybody named Bathshebeth. So it won't surprise you to learn that I know no one named Josheb Bashabeth. Uh, we'll just call him JB. He was the chief of the three. Here we just get rolling into the storytelling. There must have been so much more to add to this. One day he took his spear and defended us and he took down 800 of the enemy. So he's the chief of the three. Okay, okay. Could be hearing more about that, but go ahead and roll on to the next one in verse 9. Next to him was Eliezer. Eliezer was one of these mighty three warriors. One day, Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired. Even though the rest of the soldiers fled, he fought till his hand was frozen around the sword. By the way, If J.B. teaches us anything about being a warrior in God's kingdom, in God's calling, in God's family, one maybe ought be prepared that when we achieve a victory, we may need 800 of the exact same victories in a row. Have you noticed? Are you, like me, a little bit impatient I pray for a victory and every once in a while it occurs and then I am stunned to have to pray that again. No, no. 800. On that day. Or there he is, Eliezer with a sword in his hand wielding it and he has has fought so hard for so long his hand is frozen shut on the hilt of that sword. And there are two very interesting thoughts before we move on to our third companion. First of all, the more you fight, the harder you grip, the more your hand takes a shape and maybe even can clasp the fight itself 
too hard. I wonder if it's possible for me to be driven in God's cause, but lose sight of God in favor of the cause. That I could, in fact, be more enamored with Christianity than Christ. And if there's any additional little side note, we would just read one sentence further. These words, we'll back up into it, Eliezer stood his ground, struck down the Philistines. His hand grew tired and frozen to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Ah, with my hand frozen to the sword, some days it might be easy for me to think I had great victory today. No, 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 no. Just relax your hand. The Lord... Even in these exploits, the Lord is the one victorious. That's going to be important for us to grapple with. And then there's this third one, which we're going to just pause for a moment and listen to the storyteller King David with his little son Solomon on a bed. Bedtime story. Verse 12, But Shammah took his stand in the middle of a field, He defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Don't miss that Israel's troops, in the words right prior to that, in the words right prior to that, Israel's troops had fled from the Philistines across this field full of lentils. But in the midst of this fleeing army, it stops one man. Maybe he'd been pleading with them, stop, stay. Don't run. This is the moment. This is our moment to be where God is calling us. Hold just... Here I am. What a crazy story. And you and I might wonder, look, I mean, I, I would fight for my kids, I would fight for my wife, I'd fight, maybe on a great day I'd fight for you. But the pews? The parking lot? A field? What's he doing fighting over a field? Ah, he is, in these words, going to defend this field. Ah, before we race past, keep this in mind. When God made promises to the children of Israel with regularity, his promises were, I will give you the land. That field was a promise from God. They were running across home territory, escaping to who knows where, and Shammah stops and says, either you believe his promises or you don't. I'm willing to die here on God's promises. Let's do it. <laughs> God has made promises. He's made promises like that the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against his church, his body, his people. Every once in a while, don't you feel like the gates are crowding in a little bit? Like we're struggling a bit here? You ever been in the midst of some spiritual moment, awareness of the field, and you think to yourself, seems like everybody's gone. The people I counted on, they are missing. Or in the words of one friend of mine I was on the phone with this past 
Wednesday evening as she recounts the hurt that she has received at the hand of God's people. And she says, you know what, I want to... I feel so compelled at what God is doing in my life. To, I want to do something about what's happening in this world around us and in our community, but I, I just feel angry and bitter about those who have fled. Ah, take a stand in the field. Even if you're the only one. I ask you, are you living the kind of life that makes a worthy bedtime story? Or are the days flipping off of the calendar? Just going to work, going to work, getting the kids back safely from school. Hey, I attend church on Sabbath. Ah, you hear the raspy, whispered voice of the king who repeats these words. Maybe to his son in a bedtime story, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of that empty field. And he defended it. And the Lord. Yeah, there's no question about how this happened. The Lord brought about a great victory. I love that in the, the wording of this story, you can wonder whether Shema was even all that great a soldier. What you know is he was a great friend of God. God went with him. When he stopped in the field, he stopped where God was. And you may not feel capable. You may not feel like you're able. I just want to suggest to you the question you should be asking yourself is, do I walk with Jesus or not? I'm going to call you to a place of courage today to consider being and accepting the challenge of being one of God's warriors. Courage, I love this definition of courage. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Some might try to describe courage as not having fear. Well, that's not courage, that's idiocy. If Shammah turns in that field and sees all of the, the Philistines approaching him and he can still hear the fleeing footsteps of his countrymen, if he has no fear, he's, just, he's not connected in here. But fear that has said its prayers, that's courage. That's a whole different thing. Heard somebody say, faith is unlearning your fears. Unlearning your fears. Apparently, we are born with only two natural fears at birth. One is the fear of loud noises. If you as a little baby are lying there in your crib and you hear a loud noise, that startles you and it makes you afraid even from the earliest of age. The second one is the fear of falling. Sociologists tell us those are the only two fears that you were born with. So those of you petrified to come up here and speak as I am now, that's something you've acquired. You learned that fear. Almost all of our fears are learned, which suggests, by the way, they could be unlearned. Fascinating, how do you unlearn a fear 
And most would say it isn't how we initially suspect. I, I remember, um, well, so vividly going on a date with a pretty young lady who has accompanied me to church here today. This was when we first began dating in December of that particular year. We met and went uh, snow skiing. Snow skiing, for those of you below the age of 30, had to do with two skis, two long, yeah, you know, forget about it. I mean, the idea, by the way, and those of you that have been snow skiers for very long, how many of you snow ski? Ski. Yeah, how many of you, uh, raise those hands again, hi, just let's be proud of it. Now put them down if you snowboard also. A few, just a few. Some of us are willing to actually raise our hands even higher. Are you kidding me? We're going we're gonna to bolt two feet on one of those things? That doesn't seem right. Well, I was brand new, never been snow skiing particularly, maybe one other time, and uh, my date, now wife, Carolyn, we get to the top of this hill, and I'm a little bit petrified of how this is all going to go, fairly athletic, but tall and gangly, and uh, I've, been, I've been told some things, snow plow, turn uphill, these kinds of things. My, my wife is ready to go at, at this point. My, my date, my girlfriend, she begins down the hill, you know, one, one foot slightly behind the other. Shoo. 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 Graceful. There I am. <laughs> Worried because of the children on the hill. I, if you're a child here, just, just, you're going to get your day. But, you know, their grav center of gravity is somewhere right about their ears, you know, right? They're just, they're just down, they don't even turn at all. They're just, hey, no poles, why? I was turning here! I remember falling at one point, and that was, oh, that wasn't good, and I wasn't even sure how it happened. And I'm gathering debris, and my wife, then my girlfriend, now is helping me to my feet, and we're right underneath one of the chairlifts that's going overhead with individuals on it, and some guy yells, Hey, buddy, way to impress the girl! I'm going to get this pole, and guess what? I'm not going that fast. You're going to have to come by me. Do you know when I first started actually enjoying snow skiing? was when I learned how to fall. And I learned that I could fall and it would be okay. Ironically, succeeding at something does not remove fear nearly as much as failing in small enough doses that we can build resilience and realize we're going to be okay. You may be waiting in your warrior status until you know you confidently can do it. And you'll never get there. I'm going to recommend to you that you're going to have to step out, step up, and fail in small enough doses that your courage grows. And by the way, in the context of this great God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit among us, we recall 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, which says that perfect love unlearns fear. 
So by the way, body of Christ, you're a participant in helping someone fail well and build up courage. Well, David's been waiting to tell us this one final story. Are you ready for it? It's a snowy day. And on this snow-covered ground, if you look close, you will see very large footprints. And that brings us to Benaiah who will follow those footprints around a corner and through the snow into a depression. We'll call it a pit. And you can see steam rising from the pit. And you can hear an ultra-low purr. Because in the pit, is a 500-pound beast who can run 35 miles per hour and can crush a human skull with one bite. Anybody been camping where there are bears? What do you do? What, what, what do you do if you're walking along out on a trail and there, well, first of all, some people say, well, first of all, you're doing it all wrong. You've got to be yelling out, hey, bear, hey, bear, hey, bear. Okay. But now you turn a corner and there's a bear. What do you do? Somebody say, run. That depends on who you're with. Good survival rule is have a foot race with whoever you're worth first. You'll understand what your options are. Yeah, run is the thing that's going to cross your mind first. Run. They say things like get, get large, get big, get, get uh, loud. Yeah, do, uh, okay. But everything about it, if you are far enough away, you will retreat. You're not going to just say, okay, let's do this. <laughs> Whew, glad this is happening. But Benaiah on that particular day with these large footprints leading down into a pit, which I don't know, some of your versions may say cistern, which would mean it's a pit that the lion probably can't even get out of. I mean, goodness, let's just leave that alone. Let's put a cover on it or something. But slipping and sliding through the slushy snow to attack a lion who was not coming after you, for all you knew, Ah, Benaiah. He sees the lion and he sees an opportunity. When you see the lion, do you see an opportunity? Oh, so often we complain about the lions. Ah, you know, let's just be honest. It's hard to build community in a large church. Lion. Uh, I mean, goodness, have you done any of the math on how many of our 20-year-olds are leaving the church? It's a lion. 
You know what, in a large church like this, I mean, let's just be honest, people love to come and watch and hear good music and maybe a good sermon and, and then go. They don't really want to be involved. It's a lion. And maybe Jesus Christ is saying, much will be done on the day you get into the pit with the lion. Oh, wow. I ask you, do you have any audacious, big deal things that you have on your heart that are stirring in you? Any dreams for God? Anything you wish were happening? How, what has been your approach to that? Has it been mostly to tell other people you wonder why nobody's doing it? Maybe we should not expect anyone else to be more passionate about the thing that God has put on my heart than I am. Benaiah, on the 20, 20th verse, Benaiah also went, it's just a single, simple sentence, also, along with the other things that he did, killing the two uh, best warriors there of Moab and killing this giant from Egypt, the different things that he did. Benaiah also went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion, and that's that. Something, uh, <clears throat> so I've been playing softball here this year. Coach, my arm feels better, but I do need about a half hour of warm up. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> and I am prone to having things suddenly tighten, and then I kind of baby that, and something else tightens, and so it's a little. I've been playing first base where they feel like that's safe to put a 55 year old. Maybe, maybe that's all right. You just get over there, we're going to throw the ball at you. But in some of the games, there are people who can hit it down the right field line or over to first base. And here's what I've realized. I have not been playing softball much recently, and I cannot do it the way I used to do it. I used to have really quick reflexes and a lot more athleticism. I can't do it the way I used to be able to do it when I was playing a lot. Now I have to do some things to overcome my atrophy. One of them is I realize if I'm there, just kind of there, and somebody hits a line shot down my direction, oh, that's not going to go quite the way I will hope or be proud of. I now, if you, if you were there, my wife, I don't know whether she picked up on this, if you notice, I will back up a little further than normal. Why? Because as the pitch starts, first thing I'm going to do is start leaning forward, and then I'm going to start walking up. I need to aggressively approach whatever gets hit my direction or I'm going to get eaten up. Do you need to aggressively approach? Maybe especially if you're out of practice. Maybe especially if you haven't been engaging. Maybe you need to lean toward the lion and walk up. You don't know how to do it. I want to share just two or three things that I believe could help you grapple with your dreams and God's calling in your life. By the way, if you want some interesting reading material, and some of you that have read it might even notice some influence in this message from some of, well, Mark Batterson wrote two books, one of them, uh, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Seems pretty much on target. Second one, Chase the Lion. I've only glanced through those books, but uh, 
I do find it interesting to take a note on what it is Mark Batterson will say about this lion in the pit situation. He says this, if you are big enough for your dream, your dream isn't big enough for God. If you can accomplish your dream, you don't need God. A God-sized dream has plenty of room in it for both God and you. But it is not at all possible if you removed God from it. So how do you grapple with God's calling on your life? What, what could you be doing to really seek out your next step, your next move? had a good conversation with somebody only yesterday who shared, you know, God's been doing big and important things in my life, especially through a recent experience, and I've begun really churning over this notion that maybe there is something more God is calling me to do. That whole thing you've been talking about, Pastor Dave, what's your thing? I've been wrestling over that. That might be you, but you might be struggling to find your thing, what God is calling you to. The lion in the pit, for that matter. So I'm going to give you two or three things that you might try. First of all, we are tempted when we want to discover God's calling on our life to stare blankly into the future, a place we cannot see. Or into the stars and wonder, and we cannot locate some dream, some calling, something out there. That, that's very often the case. I want to encourage you to consider not looking off into the future, but turning around and looking back. Look at what we'll call life gates, unique moments where something has happened in your life that tells you something about you, tells you something about how God is guiding you. Maybe there's a handle on that experience that if you were just to turn it and open it, you would realize God has prepared you for something quite unique. It could be that you've been hurt by people who have disenfranchised you, criticized you, broken you down in front of others. Guess what? Open that gate and you might notice that you are capable of seeing the look in another person's eye when they feel alone. And you know how it feels. And you have passion to make a difference. Maybe the lion in that pit of disenfranchisement is not simply to stand back and say, why don't they do better? But to climb down with God in the pit and say, use me, let's see what happens. Examine your life gates, the experiences you've been through, the things that have been challenging or the things that have been a success and ask yourself, what is it that God is building in me that I could glorify Him with that something? Another way to put it, and if you are a note taker, you want to write these down, is really simple and easy, but here you go. <clears throat> Get yourself a good journal or a pad of paper and maybe on a couple of mornings a week or once a week early in the morning for a little while, ask yourself this question. What makes me mad, glad, or sad? What makes me mad, glad, or sad? And what does that say about what God is building me up for? Some of us have spent some moments through the course of this past week watching our denominational leaders conduct their work. And there are some parts of that that make me glad. 
And there's some other parts. But rather than turning to anger at those other people, what if God is saying, that's something I'm provoking in you to be responsible for? Yeah, but I'm not in that position. I'm not over in that circumstance. I don't have that kind of money. I've never been, I'm not the right gender. I'm not the right age. I'm not the right size. And I, yeah, there's no right size for attacking a lion. Maybe God is stirring an awareness in you. What makes you what makes you mad? What makes you glad? What makes you sad? Consider digging there for God's compunction, God's pushing. I'll give you another one. Try saying it out loud. Once you've discovered something, try saying it out loud. Say it to somebody else. Say that thing that you've been concerned about to somebody else, and in fact, make a bold claim. Point out the line and say, you know what, I think I'm going down there. I love that Thomas Edison would routinely announce his inventions before he had accomplished them. Hold a press conference about an invention he was going to come out with. Why? Because then you're on. So then, as you are attempting, having announced you will have an electric light bulb, you now must keep going. Try saying it out loud. I like doing that. I like speaking ideas into existence, testing them in conversation. But I'll say a few right here. Some of them you might have heard me talk about. Others you might not have. I'm going to make a couple of lion-in-the-pit bold comments right now that are on my heart. And I'd love to invite you into this. One of them is, and this comes from my friend Tim Cross, pastor on our team, who over time has become more and more convicted and that has now infected me. We have a little over 3,500 members on the books of this church, and whenever anybody asks me, well, what percentage attends church? I have no idea. Pastor Tim said, hey, what if we tried to set up a team capable of visiting with every member every year. Whew! I'm tired even just doing the math on that. How many? Yeah. I think we need to do it. I think we ought to do it. I think we ought to say it. I think we ought to just say it. In 2020, we're going to visit every member. I don't have any idea how that's going to work. I am pretty sure it's going to involve you. I'll give you another one. I'm tired of, and, and, and I'm one of them, I'm tired of whining about how many of our 20-year-olds have left and are leaving. Not because I think it's any less true today than it was yesterday, but because I think we ought to just name it. It's a lion in the pit, and we're going down. Let's get in there. We're going to go after it. We're going to admit that we're the university church. We're going to admit that we are a part of a vivid and vast 
community filled with all sorts of individuals that would call themselves former Seventh-day Adventists. We're going to get in. And we're going to go past that. We're going to try to lower the average age of every area of leadership in our family. Since we're saying things. Or how about this one? Big, huge lion. There are things that we don't talk about. There are things we don't have the courage to dig into because of the challenge that comes in trying to uphold biblical theology and be loving. I think we've got to wrestle that lion to the ground and figure out how those two must be together. So Benaiah runs down into a pit. And if you don't know how to dream your own dream, then there is a recipe even in this story for you to claim. If you don't have a dream on your own, the very best, I believe, tested and tried, very best way to find your dream for God is to step up and stand next to and partner with somebody who articulates their own dream and help them. And as you help somebody else with their dream, your dream will become more and more bold and vivid. Don't sit back. That grounder's going to hop up on you. <laughs> it's going to leave a mark. Don't wait until you are the perfect lion slayer. Did you not hear it? For the Lord brought about a great victory. Pursue Him. Just understand this. He's not hanging back on the couch either. He's ready to get up. He's ready to do something. I'm just going to suggest to you, there is something that comes from a little bit of research. As we wind our way down, I'll invite our musicians back up. There's some research done in the 1990s, mid-90s, on the subject of regrets. Now, there are two different kinds of regrets, and we'll help you see a little bit of this up on the screen. There are what these researchers called action regrets and then inaction regrets. An action regret would be if I walk up to somebody and say, oh, really, when are you due? And they say, I'm not pregnant. I, ha, I regret that I did that. I regret that I asked that young lady in high school to go out with me and she turned me down. And that hurt, so I regret it. Inaction regrets are when I wanted to ask that young lady out in high school, but I never got the courage and never did it, and so I now regret my inaction, my lack of action. Now, here's what's very fascinating about this research. They did a little bit of, of work to see. Now, what do you regret most as a human being? And across this grand study, uh, there were people that fell in both categories, right? There were some that regretted most their actions, and others regretted their inactions. And in the short term, the breakdown went about like this. 53% would say, I more regret my actions, things that I did, I was an idiot, or boy, that was embarrassing, or I was ostracized, or whatever. 
regretted that they hadn't done certain things. But over time, as you get to the long term and you're looking back on your life with some perspective, that flips rather massively. So that by the time we are all done, you and I are more likely to regret what I did not do, that I felt a compulsion to do, that I felt a leading of God to do, that I felt called to do, that maybe I wasn't even sure I could do, or maybe I knew for sure I couldn't do. But I should have tried. I should have tried. So many more of us will regret that we came to church and just watched than that we gave it a go and somebody asked a question and I bumbled my way through it and I think I even gave them the wrong answer. And so I call you to be a warrior, little boy on his bed, listening to dad tell stories. Ah, there was this Benaya. And on a snowy day, he saw the paw prints of a big, had to have been large, 500-pound male lion. He tracks it to a pit. And he goes in after it. That little boy lying in bed listening to King David, his dad, tell stories, would one day become king himself. And once you know it, this Benaiah who stood up to be a warrior in the cause of protecting David, and he was just, I mean, he was just a warrior nobody knew until David started telling the stories and God started leading in his life, and he walked alongside the dream of David. But Something's going to change. 1 Kings chapter 2, about verse 35, what you'll find is Solomon is now king, and he needs a commander of the whole army. And who do you think he goes to? Bedtime story, Benaiah. Will you lead my army? I've been listening to stories about you since a kid. Whose life will you change because of the story told about how God miraculously changed everything? in a way that couldn't possibly have been you. Don't you want to be there when he parts the Red Sea? Don't you want to be there when he heals the sick? Don't you want to be there when somebody's eternal life is changed and shifted? Don't you want to be there when he slays the lion? and invites you to be the one who walks up out of the pit. Lord God, <clears throat> forgive us for, for so often settling for a calm place to sit. Give us the heart of a warrior. Young men, young women, older men, older women, everyone in between, would you give us the heart of a warrior who will be willing to go wherever you're going, stand alone in a field of lentils and say, bring it. This is as good a place to die as any place, and if God wills it, I will it too. But if he is wanting to bring victory, it doesn't matter how many there are. 
It doesn't matter how difficult it is. It doesn't matter that the lion can run faster. It doesn't matter. Lord God, I wonder how your heart burns for a moment when we would turn to you and say, Lord, I, I, just to be honest about it, I don't know how to do this. But I see the lion. I've got a pretty good eyeful of the lion, and I think something must happen. We've got to give it a try. Help it to be in low doses of failure first, please, Lord. But whatever level you need from me, I'm in. I'm in. So, Lord God, through the course of this week, would you call us out? Would you push us further? Would you help us unlearn our fears? Draw so close to us that your love changes everything. In Jesus we ask it. Amen. Amen. And a happy Sabbath to you.